0: The information and opinions presented in this Arc Energy Ideas podcast are provided for informational purposes only and are subject to the disclaimer link in the show notes.
1: This
2: is the Arc Energy Ideas podcast with Peter Tertzakian and Jackie Forrest, exploring trends that influence the energy business. Welcome to the Arc Energy Ideas podcast. I'm Jackie Forrest.
0: And hey, I'm Peter Tertzakian. Welcome back. Well, Jackie, we broadcasted from the WPC World Petroleum Congress a few weeks back, and now we're going to be broadcasting from a clean electricity conference coming up. Why don't you tell us about it?
2: Electricity Transformation Canada is actually at the same place, the BMO Centre in Calgary. That is Canada's biggest renewable energy conference. It's actually been held in Toronto for a number of years, so exciting Mm -hmm. that it's here in Calgary. It's the biggest renewables conference. As I said, there's going to be a really large trade show. It's happening right now as you're listening, October 23rd to 25th. So as we're releasing this podcast, we'll be on the first big day of the conference. So I just encourage people to check it out. We're actually going to be doing some live podcast recordings right from the trade show floor.
0: Well, looking forward to it. And I hope I can park this time, given all the mayhem that was there a few weeks ago. Anyway, on to our special guest who comes to us from nine time zones away from... None other than Estonia. We are delighted to have with us Rob West, analyst and CEO of Thundersed Energy. And I must say, Thundersed, if you don't know it, is a must read website because the depth of analysis and the incredible context it provides for anyone studying energy transition
1: is, uh, as I said, it's a must read. So, Rob, welcome. Well, thank you so much for having me and for those incredibly kind words of introduction.
2: Well, let's start out, Rob. You described yourself on your website as the research consultancy for energy technologies. So, just tell us a bit more about what you do and and what kind of information people can find on your website.
1: Well, I, I guess it all started with this growing goal that you know really picked up in 2018 to like meet the needs of human civilization. So, eighty thousand terawatt hours a year of useful energy, about sixty billion tons a year of stuff that we produce every year. Uh, you know, by 2050. Those numbers are going to be bigger. It's probably going to be 120,000 terawatt hours a year of energy and 100 billion tons a year of stuff. And we need to do all of that and then decarbonize all the stuff. So, you know, go from 50 billion tons a year of CO2 to zero. And I've just become fascinated with this question of how do we do that? Mm -hmm. Which is really an ocean boiling exercise of looking at hundreds of different technologies and opportunities. And for each one, just, you know, what is it? How does it work? What does it cost?
0: It is a daunting goal in what I mean, used to say 27 short years. Now we're pushing 26 short years here as we close out 2023. Hey, Rob, before we get started, I think our audience, certainly those who follow you, are curious about the name Thundersaid. Where does that come from, Thundersaid Energy?
1: Yeah, it's from a poem that I like called The Wasteland by T.S. Eliot. Mm. And... um you know, it's about a pretty bleak world where nothing will grow and no one can prosper. And the sort of antidote is the final chapter is called What the Thunder Said. And um, it washes away all of the bleakness. And Mm so I guess that's kind of what we need is antidotes rather than drowning in bleakness.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, I love the symbolism and and the poetry of T.S. Eliot. So tell us how many topics you cover. I mean, the energy landscape, is so vast, and the as, you know the infrastructure that pumps out eighty thousand terawatts a year is just incomprehensible in scale. So, how many topics do you cover, and how large is your team?
1: Yeah, it, it's the ultimate very hungry caterpillar. When I started the company, I thought you know I might look at wind, solar, batteries, EVs, hydrogen. I think across the thousand items of you know research and data files and models. There are definitely over 200, you know, distinct pieces of the puzzle in my roadmap to net zero, which kind of un- underpins my my just feeling that like the more I've looked at, the stupider I feel. <laughs> but it, I, I I do all the research myself. I'm trying to run wow. it through the same brain so that I can fairly weigh things up like one against another. And I've never really figured out a great way to delegate to somebody mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. read a stack of patents and tell me how I feel about them.
0: Yeah, so I guess you feel like there's 25 hours in the day like many high-performing people I know, so good for for you. (laughs) Yeah,
2: well, it's funny, Rob. I will tell you that a lot of people do follow your work, and it's often a point of of conversation like, wow, he puts out so much material. People are very impressed with your productivity. I hope we all can be uber productive like you. It's amazing the amount of work you put out. I wanted to follow up with one of your opening statements there. You said you've been boiling the ocean for the past five years, and I found that quite interesting. The more you know, the less you feel like you really know, and we we have that issue too Mm -hmm, in mm -hmm. research. But maybe tell us, what are some of the conclusions that after five years of doing this, the big trends and conclusions people can take away?
1: I think energy transition is possible, but it's going to be the biggest construction project in the history of human civilization, costing something like, $5 trillion a year to get the world to net zero, maybe $9 trillion a year of investment going in. There's there's probably 10 sectors with $15 trillion of market cap that get just completely swept up by this very hungry caterpillar. On the one hand, there's more technology change happening than any time in history. There's 7 million patents filed every year now. That was growing about 5% a year a decade ago. It's now growing at 10% a year. So even the pace of technology change is trying to go ever faster. But on the other hand, I kind of observed as somebody who spends my days looking at technologies that there's this life cycle of generating huge hype. And then it sort of takes 15 years for something to go from the lab to the real world.
0: To the real world. And then from the real world, it has to follow some adoption curve. So actually, by the time you go from 7 million patents to any meaningful dent in the substitution curve. I mean, it's you're talking probably 30 years, yet we only have 23.
1: I think that's what makes the the real world changes all the more remarkable. Uh, you know, my, my perception has been that I'm sitting here like wanting to find cool things that's going to change the world, but really, you know, I think 2050 is going to look a lot more like today's world with some tilts and a few big game changers than you know this kind of transformation that some other people think is is out there and going to happen.
2: Well, that comes to a very popular topic for us. It seems like we just hit on it last week Mm -hmm. uh, with Pemina Institute, an environmental organization. This debate around the future of energy, specifically the path of oil and gas, and the folks that say, well, hey, the IEA scenario that says we're going to have this drastic drop in oil and gas demand to 2050, something like 80% drop from today, between now and then. Do you see that as possible? And if not... What do you think is likely?
1: Yeah, what makes the market is that different people are entitled to different views. That's not the view that seems likely to me. I, I think if I was emperor of the world, I, which is a, t- a title that I would not deserve, and I could sort of dictate what would be the most plausible, most economical route to get the world to net zero, that means like zero net CO2 in 2050, I still think you know, that the best way to do it, you'd end up with... Oil kind of flatlining and declining gently to about 85 million barrels a day by 2050. You end up with more gas. How much more gas? You know that's the balancing line in the model. Uh, I could see it going from 400 BCF a day to 800 BCF a day, and mainly the reason to do that is, is to phase out coal, which mm-hmm. is you know twice as much CO2 per unit of energy because it's, it's almost all coming from carbon going to CO2, whereas natural gas half the energy is. The hydrogen in the methane molecule, CH4.
0: Mm-hmm. What do you think it is that people take scenarios and twist them into predictions?
1: It's hard. It's very difficult. I mean, like one thing that sort of sticks in my mind is the question about efficiency gains. So if you go back to 1970, like, the energy intensity of GDP has been falling by 1% per year. Mm-hmm. And like, okay, so is it going to go to 2%? Or 3% or 4%. And that seems like just splitting hairs, you know, a percentage point here and there. And I can see how if you put slightly different numbers in and compound them forward for 26 years, you know, you get to very different places. So if you ask me about that particular debate, my sense would be the challenge of Jevons paradox the, the idea mm-hmm. that as you make stuff more efficient, you unlock this new demand. So mm-hmm. one of my favorite examples of that is lighting. You know, lighting. The efficiency of lighting has improved by 90% every half century since 1800. And yet commercial lighting demand is still making new highs. We're building The Sphere in Las Vegas, this incredible building covered in 54,000 square meters of LEDs.
0: LED lights are six times as efficient as incandescent lighting, but then people just put up six times as many lights under their kitchen counters or on their Christmas tree or what have you. But I think you've addressed the elephant in the room in many ways. I mean, in your opening statement, you know, it's these are all numbers, but it just, you know, going from 80,000 terawatt hours to 120,000, which is a 50% gain in overall energy by 2050. Where is that energy coming from?
1: Well, I, I think it's depressing, the inequality in the global energy system. You know, the top billion of us in the developed world use about 25 megawatt hours of useful energy per person per year. The remaining 7 billion people use about 75% less, mm-hmm. 6 megawatt hours per person per year. The bottom 4 billion people use 90% less, you know, 3 megawatt hours. And, you know, these sound like really abstract stats, but like to bring it to life a bit, like 85% of all the people in the world have, have never been on an airplane. The bottom 4 billion people in the world, if you kind of quantify the living space in their dwelling per person, it's less than 10 square meters, mm-hmm. which is less than a regulation-sized prison cell in the Western world, you know, and these are just sort of really scary numbers and, and make it hard to imagine that, you know, there's 7 billion people outside of the developed world will not grow their energy consumption, I, I hope, you know, to maybe 10 megawatt hours per person per year in my model, which is still 60% less than the levels in the West today. So kind of still crazy low numbers.
2: Well... You know, Rob, generally, we we would agree with you that the outlook for oil demand and gas demand is much higher than these net zero scenarios because of these reasons, right? The, the fact that the developing world is probably going to consume more energy. We're going to have clean energy, but it's going to be very difficult to get off oil and gas with the growth. But that brings me to a point, well, then we're not going to meet these 1.5 degrees C scenarios. And what is the solution to that? Like, do you think we need to really be ramping up carbon capture storage or direct air capture? Like, what are your views on those technologies? Can they fill the gap or is the gap just too large?
1: So I, I genuinely think done right, they can fill that gap. And there's there's nothing incompatible you know, with an energy system that is 30, 40% renewables in 2050 and 85 million barrels a day of the lowest carbon oil several hundred bcf a day of the lowest carbon gas and then you know i'd I'd have something like seven billion tons a year of ccs and blue hydrogen a billion tons a year of dac 15 billion tons a year of of nature you know the biggest unsung possible hero of co2 removal Hmm. uh, in in the world today
0: let's actually let's talk about that nature-based solutions because they've sort of seemingly gone a bit out of favor or less prevalent in the dialogue about solutions. What are you sensing?
1: Yeah, I feel that too. I feel there's a kind of ebb and flow of momentum behind almost all the energy transition technologies that you know, I've followed. I mean, the fact's that like we've deforested 5 billion acres since pre-industrial times. That's a third of all of the gross CO2 that's mm-hmm. gone into the atmosphere. and if you can pull out 3 billion acres that get reforested at 5 tons of CO2 per acre per year, which is the global average,
0: mm-hmm. you know,
1: that's a 15 billion ton per year carbon sink. And you, you don't you know, have to have like ridiculous things like trees living forever. You just have to go from those 3 billion acres being not forested to you know, reforested. And the cost of that is something like $50 a ton, which I, I hope we get to come back to like relative costs of stuff. That's a number that I think flies, that I think can do a lot of useful decarbonization. This has got to be done right. And I think that's where the initial nature-based projects have fallen down, is that they haven't all been right. They haven't been real, incremental, long-lasting, measurable, biodiverse. And I, I know there are people out there working really hard to fix that.
2: Yeah, I hope that um, the whole credibility issue gets solved and we can get on track in terms of, because we're obviously going to need a lot of money to go into that space to plant all those trees and to take that land back. But I just want to come back to your the last question in that I'm really happy to hear that you think there is a way to make it, but we need to be spending a lot more time probably on carbon capture storage, direct air capture, nature-based solutions to offset the fact that we will be using more oil and gas demand. One frustration for me, just a general comment, not a question, is just that we're so busy looking at these unrealistic scenarios for where oil and gas demand goes that we're not, and this is not we, like the world, people that go to COP, are not focused on, actually, those aren't that possible, so we need to be really investing a lot of effort and time in these solutions. So I hope that that message and the information you're getting is getting out there and hopefully informing some of these conversations.
1: Yeah, I I love that point. I mean, I I think it's one thing that really strikes me is this paradox that, you know, there was a recent survey, 40% of Americans said they wouldn't give $1 per month you know, in order to do decarbonisation. Candidly, my own roadmap involves lining up every single person in the world and taking away three percent of their disposable income forever to do energy transition at an average cost of about $40 per ton of CO2 that gets you know avoided or, or removed from that emissions mix. It's it's a distribution, right? So I think you could very realistically have 10% of all the decarbonization in the range of 100 to $150 a ton. But, you know, if there are solutions out there that cost several hundred dollars a ton, that's not a solution for the 1%, for the 0.1%, but for the 0.0001%, right? And, and that, I just think that's something that's kind of important to figure in terms of what can scale
0: yeah, I I love what you're saying because this is a sense I get and what you're getting at is, okay, let, let's just back up for a minute. You said we have to spend like $5 trillion or $9 trillion a year. I don't know the number is so big it's hard to comprehend. Yeah, that's right. But we're not even close to that. Whatever the number is. It strikes me as what reading between the lines you're saying is that there's a misallocation of capital and really expensive solutions like that cost $300 a ton, Right. And we shouldn't be wasting our money on that stuff because there is proverbially the lower hanging fruit at forty dollars a ton. And if we all put our heads together and found the optimal set of where to spend all this ridiculous amount of money, then we would be a lot further ahead.
1: I mean, I guess like I would just use a oil industry analogy. Like if the whole world thought that the marginal barrel for the world was going to be, you know, oil sands mining and you know, that was where all global supply growth was going to have to come from. And then you went out and you invented Permian shale. And you could really get big in that space before anybody else had figured out that that was a, bit, a yeah. lot lower on the cost curve. Yeah. You know, you're, going to, you're going to make a lot of money doing that. And I think you're going to provide something that the world needs. And, and so as investors, like I can see the cost curve. I want to go to the bottom of the cost curve. And, and there are a lot of interesting things there.
0: Yeah. I mean, what are some of the things that you think are leading to this misallocation of capital? In other words, where are we spending money that we shouldn't be, based on your analysis of high-cost solutions that are too distant?
1: I'm most excited by the stuff that's hidden away. So the thing that excites me most is really gritty, really nerdy process technology. Did you know the average industrial process today it's like 20% thermodynamically efficient.
0: efficient yeah.
1: So in, in other words, like if you want to make ammonia with an energy content of one megawatt hour, you put in five megawatt hours of energy to you know, actually make it. For 20% of all the stuff in the world, the process is less than 5% thermodynamically efficient. And that's where a better catalyst, a better reactor, a better process technology is going to be able to take some of the, I mean, a great example is DAC.
0: Direct Air Capture.
1: Thank you. Sorry, I speak in yeah. acronyms. Yeah. You know, the, the minimum energy you need to separate 400 ppm CO2 out of air, it's like 130 kilowatt hours a ton. And the best process technology we have today is 2,500 kilowatt hours per ton. Less than 5% efficient. And somebody's going to come along with the right sorbent and put it in a passive system where you don't have to blow any air and they're just going to zap it with electricity and it will absorb the co2 and then they zap it with electricity again and it will release the co2 and you know there are labs looking at that there are some really cool patent libraries i've been through but when that happens you know i wouldn't want to be building like liquid DAC calciners you know
0: yeah i think that's very cool but you know again By the time you commercialize it, by the time you get the thing scaled up, by the time it starts removing CO2 in any meaningful quantity, we can allocate some of our capital to much lower hanging fruit today, say even in the nature set of solutions or other solutions, right? Or the converse, which is not spending so much money on stuff that will never be thermodynamically efficient, especially when it's chained together in a complex system.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean. There are some concepts out there that are the thermodynamic equivalent of printing out your emails. I want to come back to
2: that direct air capture, though, Peter, because, yes, there's lots of low-hanging fruit, but if there was a way to figure out how to do that in a more efficient way that could be economic, we should all be spending a lot of money and time accelerating that, mm-hmm. because I think we're going to need that to reduce emissions in that future where we're going to be using more oil and gas. So I think it it's one of those game changers that would really change the outlook for the climate situation, in my view.
1: Well, so I, I think, like, kind of picking up on that, there is this temptation to look at investments as like either or, and hold off on doing anything until the perfect DAC sorbent has been found, and that, that's not a great answer either. Like, that's why I think we've underinvested in energy by about a trillion dollars since 2016. So, I'm very much an all of the above kind of guy.
0: Can you, can you just elaborate underinvested by a trillion dollars? In other words, we should be spending more, is what I'm hearing you say. And the that begs the question, who should be spending more? Is it incumbent on the public purse or private capital? Or, or like what are you thinking?
1: A better way to, to frame it would be how much does global energy demand want to grow every year? Probably wants to grow about 2% per year. And you can add up all of the Coal that's going to come online, oil that's going to come online, gas, hydro, nuclear, wind, solar, add it up, and sort of you know put it all together. I think we're going to be about two percent short of energy in 2025, growing to about six percent short of energy in 2030. You know, relative to that level of like what what we would want if we we're going to grow at two percent a year. The context we've grown at three percent a year since 1970.
0: Are you meaning all energy from all sources? We're going to be short.
1: That's right. That's right. And so. I think what's going to be the mechanism that bludgeons down demand to the level we can actually supply? Well, it's going to have to be you know, quite high prices. And you know, I, I almost wonder if you're going to need to have prices high enough for long enough to move the hydrocarbon industry like, out of this limbo. You know, I, I think there's been a message like, don't invest. And I'm not sure that's the right answer. I think that, that mm. might be a reason that we're going to be short of energy.
2: Now, Rob, you wrote about this back in November of 2022, and I do want our audience to know that you can subscribe for no cost to Rob's newsletters, and I do, and then you can also subscribe to get more detailed information on each of the blogs. But back in November 22, you warned that energy shortages are going to happen because of this underinvestment. That was certainly real for people at that period, but the last year, it's kind of gone the other way. Now, suddenly, we seem to have a lot of oil OPEC has spare capacity. Gas situation isn't quite as dire as back then. World seems to be a lot less concerned about energy shortages at this moment than back then. Have you changed your view at all because of the last year, where we seem to be back to abundance?
1: So I, I think that's made things worse. So I, I've had my kind of energy undersupply jaws chart since 2021. Like it was really 2021 that I started getting quite worried about that, and. Um, I guess my view for this year I wrote this in January, was we're going to have this effective industrial slowdown you know, caused by raising interest rates at almost the highest ever level, fastest ever level. And I think we've seen that slowdown in demand from you know this rate rising cycle, like a mini banking crisis, China kind of only slowly coming out of COVID restrictions. And the weak pricing and the high interest rates have not been great for progressing that needed energy supply. So you know, I've found my wind numbers being cut by about 0.7 percent of all global energy in the second half of the decade, because you know offshore wind projects have been so moribund in this high interest rate environment, maybe also hitting the limits of how much we can upscale the turbines. I found my shale numbers like revised down by three million barrels a day. Second half of the decade. Because, you know, again, we've got an industry that is saying, hey, you know, oil prices might be $80 a barrel. I might be able to get 60% well level IRRs, but I don't need to spend that capex. And I sort of wonder if um, the weak environment of 2023 maybe sets the stage for things to be actually worse in the second half of the decade than you know, I would have had at the start of the year.
2: Right. Because it's resulting in less spending. Well, Rob, you've got so many topics on your website, I can't. we can't cover them all, but I was really interested in a write-up you did around Germany and how, as they've grown in terms of the amount of renewables, wind and solar, that they've had in their electrical grid, how that has actually increased power costs. And you had done some analysis of that. And I want to highlight that because that is a huge debate here in Alberta, where we've been bringing on more and more renewables. And there's a debate, is that actually reducing the price of power, you know, in theory it is, because if you look at those levelized cost analysis, it shows that wind and solar are much cheaper generation than a lot of other sources like fossil fuels. But at the same time, they do increase the cost of transmission. You do have lower utilization rates on some of those fossil fuel generators, which all things the same should mean that they charge more for running. So do you think that renewables is actually causing electrical grids and electrical power to be cheaper? And just what is your research shown on that?
1: I want to start by being positive. Like I, I do think solar efficiency is going to double again from here. I do think solar is going to surprise to the upside, even though everybody expects it to a surprise to the upside. I think it's one of the you know, true game changers of energy transition. But it is hard to look at the data and, and not conclude that countries who've ramped renewables fastest in the past have higher electricity prices. At the overall grid level today. I guess I worry about levelized cost analysis, but it's a little bit dangerous. Like it gets used as though the task is to find some lowest cost energy source to rule them all, and then go all in on that and coming back to our previous discussion, cancel investment in absolutely everything else. And I don't think that's how energy works. Like I think getting to net zero, you know, involves more of a, a balance. On, on the grid point. I mean, the way I would think about it is, like if I have an apartment that I'm renting for $100 a month, and then I have to go and rent a second apartment, like it doesn't matter what the cost and like, how low that second apartment is. like Even if it's $10 a month, if I have to go and rent it as well, like, my overall rental costs are clearly going to go up, not down. And it, we do have that in grids. Uh, in the developed world, the average utilization of the grid was about 55% in the year 2000. About 38% today. And the reason is, well, you know, we're ramping up a large asset base with solar, maybe 20% utilization factor, wind maybe 30 to 40% utilization factor. And when that ramps up, something else has to ramp down. And so, you know, I, I think we, we do want to ramp wind and solar responsibly in our grids. It might mean the grids are more expensive, but it also means that they can be more resilient. So you know, if you have all of your eggs in one basket, and that basket has a problem, then you have a problem. And, and so, I, you know, I would say having a diversified grid that includes wind, solar, hydro, nuclear, mm-hmm. low-carbon gas in balance, it will be slightly higher cost on any one day where the wind is really, really blowing, or when gas is really, really cheap. But overall, I think a lower cost system is one that is more diversified.
0: Hmm. I completely agree that solar and batteries and electrification, power, electronics, all that kind of stuff are game changers, and I think we're going to become progressively more efficient through those pathways, I'll call them. But you're the numbers guy, Rob. So I'm going to give you a trillion dollars. And given that you see supply shortages, there's a climate urgency geopolitics leading to energy insecurity. How would you spend that trillion dollars today if you were to ration it across the energy landscape?
1: Well there's a there's a 10 second answer and there's a 10 minute <laughs> answer and there's a 10 hour answer. 10 so hour answer. I guess which one you I guess which one you want right now.
0: It's a 10 second answer. A one minute answer.
1: I'll say something controversial. I would build renewables obviously but I'd also build out a lot of gas. You know, I mean, numbers that kind of really stick in my mind is, it, what's the worst thing out there, right? Like, I don't want to sort of build a bunch of wind turbines in order to scale back my nuclear plants. Like, there are countries that have done that. No decarbonization is achieved by doing that. But if you sort of do the numbers, like the worst stuff out there is low-efficiency coal. Yeah. You, know, you can find power generation out there that is over one kilogram Per kilowatt hour of useful electricity. And you know what? There's 8 billion tons a year of coal still being burned. Like that's 40% of all the world's emissions. And so, you know, if you kind of quantify, and I have this chart, like per billion dollars spent, where do you deliver the most decarbonization? I'll tell you, per billion dollars spent, the most decarbonization is getting large quantities of high efficiency, low methane leak natural gas to areas that would otherwise be burning low-efficiency coal, like China and India. And dollar for dollar, actually, you find that that is the biggest decarbonization you can do.
0: Yeah, dollar for dollar, and I've written about this many times in the past, talked about it as improving efficiency. I mean, I ran the numbers. If you have 100 pounds of coal, by the time you burn it, transmit it, and put it through an incandescent old-school light bulb, the amount of light energy you're producing is one pound of coal. So you start with 100 pounds, and 99 pounds are lost along the way to heat dominantly. And it's kind of a ridiculous process. And getting back to what you argued earlier on, our industrial processes, our civil processes are so energy inefficient by spending the significant amount of this trillion dollars on efficiency gains so that by 2050, we're not necessarily hugely different, as you said earlier on, than today, but we are potentially far more efficient, is one way to think about it.
1: Another way to kind of make that point is, so I actually brought those numbers into the discussion about, like, what does it cost to remove one tonne of CO2, you know, $40 a tonne for nature about $100 a ton for carbon capture and storage, a lot of those efficiency investments end up with negative costs per ton. You know, what you put in, you actually get 20% plus IRRs repaying those capex costs mm-hmm. you know, in the form of energy savings down the line.
0: Would you spend a dollar on a bag of insulation for your home or would you spend a dollar on a hydrogen furnace? It's pretty clear to me which is the better investment to reduce emissions and to improve the cost
1: of energy. Yeah, I totally, I totally agree with that.
2: Well, what is the answer? What would you agree with? Is it the insulation or the hydrogen furnace?
1: Oh, I, I think it's the insulation.
2: <laughs> well, it's not very exciting, though. We, liked, we <laughs> like the, the hydrogen.
1: That's just not true. It's just not true. <laughs> if you don't think it's exciting, you don't know the magic of the polyurethane's value chain to create high-grade insulation materials. I mean, it's a 20-step process. (laughs) There are interesting companies at every step of the way. And, you know, I I remain amazed. That same material, basically, it's Lycra, right? And you can go and buy a pair of running shoes with 750 grams of this unbelievably complex chemistry. And you can buy it for 80 euros, and it's way better than running 10Ks in, like, galompas made out of leather, but we didn't sort of get into this in the discussion. I mean, I think it sort of leads really nicely to it. I mean, my, my sort of biggest idea at the moment is actually we're going into like the age of materials, the age of mm-hmm. like new energies being driven by materials, energy transition being driven by materials. There's a great stat. If you go back 10 years ago, materials were about 15% of the cost of new energies, you know, everything like wind, solar, batteries. Today, it's over half. For batteries, in fact, it's two-thirds. It's materials, and the reason for that is that you know we, we've ramped the battery production capacity up by 40x in the last decade. So manufacturing has gone from like guys wearing gloves, like manually putting these cells together, to just totally automated mass manufacturing. Like the manufacturing costs come down by 90%. Mm-hmm. And so what's left is the materials, and so you know, that's already telling you that the materials you know matter a lot more for what the cost of these technologies do going forwards. But the kicker is, you know, I said earlier, I think you can double the efficiency of solar from here. I think you can quadruple the energy density of batteries from here. Yeah, Um, There'll still be 90% below hydrocarbons, but you can quadruple them. And the way you do that is paying more for materials, for better materials that enable higher voltages or higher currents or less efficiency loss.
0: And the losses in all electricity systems... It's far less than combustion-based processes.
1: So much less, yeah. I mean, 7% from generation to consumption. Well, Rob, so
2: much we've covered, so much we'd still like to ask you. We'll have to have you on at a future show. But I want your 10-second answer because we really you know, like the exciting stuff So versus insulation. Fusion, <laughs> is that going to be a big thing in 2050 or not?
1: Oh, so I, I actually wrote a research note on this. I think it will happen, but I think it will be more expensive than fission. And so, like, if you don't think that the world should be investing in small modular nuclear reactors at $3,000 a kilowatt, well, I've got bad news for you on where fusion is going to come out. I think we should be doing both of those things. So that was more than 10 seconds.
2: That's that's good. So uh, it's one of those ones where the feedstock might be cheap, but the process itself is going to be very expensive. So great. Well, Rob, we really appreciated the conversation. Thank you so much. And I do encourage our listeners to check out your website. We'll put a link to it in the show notes.
0: Yes, thunder said Energy. Rob West, analyst and CEO. Thanks so much for joining us from Estonia.
1: Thanks. I really enjoyed being on the show.
2: And thank you to our listeners. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate us on the app that you listen to and tell someone else about us. For more ideas and insights, visit arcenergyinstitute.com.